question for you. How seriously do you take sin in your life as a believer in the Lord Jesus? When singing about forgiveness, how seriously do you take continuing sin in your life as a believer in the Lord Jesus? I guess our instinctive answer may well be, well, very seriously. But I think our passage tonight will deeply challenge your answer. Well, let me ask you, how seriously do you take sin in our life as a church family of believers in the Lord Jesus? And perhaps our instinctive answer will again be, well, very seriously. But I think our passage tonight will deeply challenge your answer. Because our passage tonight is a call to recognise the destructive power of sin. Sin in the life of a believer, sin in the life of a family of believers. It's a call to recognise just how destructive sin can be. But it's also a call to recognise the saving grace of our Lord. In fact, it's a call to take seriously our role as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus, to take seriously our role in saving one another. It's therefore obviously a really important call that we should hear and obey. So let me pray and let's ask our gracious Lord to help us hear him and trust him and obey him. How about we pray? Heavenly Father, that is our desire. We want to hear you, trust you and obey you. We thank you for your word and we ask, Father, that you'd help us to understand truth. And we thank you that Jesus is the light of the world, our light even. And, Father, we ask for the light uh, of uh, illumination on your word tonight, please. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, through whom these words were first written by James and have been protected down through the ages, and by him they come to us tonight. And, Father, we pray that uh, with your word written on our hearts by your spirit, that you might help us to hear you and trust you and obey you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, our passage tonight is only short, it's only eight verses, but it's, it is one of those passages that we might call tricky or controversial. And so I thought, given that um, uh, it's only eight verses, uh, I want to approach it a little differently than we might normally do uh, in our talks. I actually want us to wrestle together uh, with this passage and actually tease some of the ideas out. Often in a Bible talk, my, my goal, I guess, is to do lots of the hard work, the wrestling work at home and leave that behind on my desk. And when I come to evening church to have a little bit more packaged and you know, leave a lot of stuff out, I've, I've not done that tonight um, because I actually want us to wrestle with some of the ideas together which might mean that you'll need to work harder with me than normal. But that's not an apology, okay? That's an, that's an invitation. Because we're serious about the Bible, aren't we? And we should be thinking, cool, a chance to wrestle hard with the Bible. So that's what we're going to do. But you know what? Basically, when it comes to reading any bit of the Bible, I, I think there are really three basic questions to ask, really. Just three questions. And they're the questions we're going to ask together of this passage. And you can see them on your outline. That's how the outline's arranged. Question one, what's the passage about? Question two, what does the passage teach about what it's about? And question three, what difference should what this passage teaches about what it's about make in our life? Or I've simplified that third one to uh, put it into James speak. How are we to be doers of this word from God? 
They're the three questions we're going to ask together as we work on this passage. And if you think about it, each question relies heavily on getting the right answer to the questions before it. Does that make sense? If you, get the, if you, if you jump straight to the question, you know, what's it a, what should I do? Well, that's going to uh, get, lead to all sorts of errors if we don't understand what the passage is about and what the passage teaches about what it's about. So we're going to tread carefully through those three questions. Working hard already? Here we go. Question one. What's the passage about? You know what? In a PLT meeting uh, a, a number of weeks ago now, we actually wrestled with this very question. We read the passage and I said to the PLT, what's it about? And we come up with all sorts of possibilities, really, about what the passage is about. So have a look at the passage again. It's only eight verses. I'm going to read it for us. Um, not that James did a bad job, but I just want to have the question floating around in your mind. As I read the passage again, I want you to see if you can answer the question, what's the passage about? Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone, anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. What's the passage about? Well, there are a number of possibilities, aren't there? We discovered that at the PLT. Maybe you take a moment. What's the passage about? Have the answer in your mind. Perhaps it's about prayer. Pops up a few times, doesn't it? Perhaps it's about healing. It's mentioned a few times, and that tends to jump out at us because it's one of those you know, words that seems brighter than the rest sometimes when we're reading the Bible. Sins mentioned a few times. Forgiveness is mentioned a few times. Restoration is mentioned, not so much the word but the idea. Uh, Faith is mentioned a number of times. What's it about? Well, I have to say that this is one of those times uh, where headings in our Bible are not always helpful. We need to recognise, okay, that while the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of James, the headings are not his, okay? The Holy Spirit didn't write the headings. But there are some possible answers. How can we choose the right one? Let's not be guided too much by the heading. Well, I reckon with some basic reading skills, we can work it out. We can work out what the passage is about. And as you can see, some guides there on the outline. The first one is purpose. A key question to ask is what was James' purpose in writing? What was his purpose in writing this passage? And really, what was his purpose in writing the whole letter? He had a reason to write, okay? It was a real letter written to real people with a real reason. And here we are now at the end of the letter, and we should have a pretty good idea of his purpose in writing. So why did James write? When you think about it, we've looked at it on Sunday nights, we've looked at it in growth groups. If you think about it, it's not really a good on your letter, is it? You know how some of the, in some of the letters in the Bible, they're a good on your letter, an encouraging letter? James doesn't really fit that. James is a stern letter, isn't it? Yes? It's a stern letter. It's a letter to Christians, remember, who are polluted by the world. Remember a couple of weeks ago, adulterous Christians who think that they can be friends with the world and friends with God at the same time. 
A few times through the letter, James accuses his, uh, the people he's writing to as being double-minded Christians. It's a letter to Christians, you see, who are failing to show the love and mercy of the Lord Jesus, remember. It's a letter to Christians who are failing to be doers of the word, remember. It's a letter, think about two weeks ago again, it's a letter to Christians who are fighting and warring with one another, using words as weapons, slandering each other. It's a stern letter. It's a letter, really, that is, in its entirety, a call to repentance. Stop going down that track. Come back on the right track. It's a call of repentance. And we saw that really clearly back in chapter 4, didn't we, two weeks ago. The heart of James' call to repentance is really chapter 4 and verses 7 to 10. Have a look at it with me. Chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. Remember it? Submit to God, he called on them. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. And see how it's summed up there in verse 10 of chapter 4. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. James' purpose throughout the, the whole letter is a, it's a call to wayward Christians, to adulterous Christians. It's a call for them to return to the Lord. James' purpose was repentance and restoration. And that immediately resonates with our passage, don't you think? Verse 15 of chapter 5, if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Verse 15, the Lord will raise him up. Verse 16, confess your sins to each other. Verse 19, if one of you should wander from the truth. Verse 20, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way. See, James' purpose in the whole letter points us pretty clearly in the direction that what this passage about is continuing his call for repentance. And that fits too with the context of the passage. That's our next sort of clue, the context. In other words, where it sits in the book. It makes sense, doesn't it, that a letter that is so concerned with calling double-minded Christians back to single-minded obedience, it makes sense that the letter should end that way. And that's clear in verses 19 to 20, isn't it? If you look at verses 19 to 20, that's precisely how James ends. But is that what James is talking about back in verses 13 to 18 as well, the beginning of our passage? Yes, it is. Yes, there's stuff about healing and praying, and we're going to get to that. But his main concern throughout verses 13 to 16 is repentance. And that's seen too in the structure of the passage. It's our third little detective clue, structure. If you think about how the passage is structured, how it's arranged, in other words... Uh, The paragraph breaks in my NIV Bible are pretty helpful, I I think. Again, Holy Spirit didn't put the paragraph breaks in there. You don't have to be guided by them, but I think they're pretty helpful. If I I had read this passage out to you without any paragraph breaks and asked you, you know, where would you break it up into three little subsections, I reckon you'd put them in the same spot. So the first section is verses 13 to 16. I've listed it on your outline. And that's where the words of sickness and prayer and healing are found. The second section, verses 17 and 18, mentions the Old Testament prophet Elijah. And the third section has that concern with bringing back the wandering brother or sister. But like we've already noticed, okay, the first section and the third section have in common the idea of repentance and restoration. What about the second section, the Elijah bit? That seems a bit different, doesn't it? There's no restoration there. More about the power of prayer, really. 
And going by that second section, maybe the passage is not about repentance and restoration. See where I'm going? I'm needing affirmation at this point. Great, okay. But here we go, you ready? In fact, I think the second section is the clincher. I think it's the clincher that this passage really is all about repentance and restoration. It just relies on us having read the Elijah incident that James is referring to. Because he would assume we know all about it. And in fact, we, we should. In our Bible reading, you see, when an Old Testament passage is quoted or alluded to, it just makes sense to go back and read it in context. So if we were to do that with the Elijah bit, this is what we'd find. So last bit, Old Testament allusion. You can actually read about the bit that James is talking about in 1 Kings chapter 18, a really famous bit of the Bible. Elijah is a prophet, okay, and he's sent to Israel in a very dark time of her history. This is when King Ahab and Queen Jezebel reigned. This is the time when Israel had given herself to worship the false god Baal. There were prophets of Baal in Israel. Baal worship was more common than the worship of Yahweh, the true and living God of the Bible, in Israel. See, Baal was thought to be the god of fertility, the god who would bring rain and good crops. And so a farming nation like Israel, it was very tempting for them to give their loyalty to Baal. The people of Israel at the time of Elijah were adulterous. They had followed the ways of the world. They thought that they could be the people of the Lord and the people of Baal at the same time. Sound familiar? And so because of all that, in judgment on Israel's adultery, the Lord, through Elijah, had held back the rain and even the dew from Israel for three and a half years. A serious drought, no rain, not even any dew. And at the end of that time, you see, the Lord sent Elijah to face off with King Ahab and to face off with the prophets of Baal and, in fact, the whole people of Israel, and they assembled on Mount Carmel. And do you know what Elijah said as he went before the people that day? There they are on the mount, Ahab, the prophets of Baal, the people of Israel. Elijah walks in front of the people, and you know what he says? 1 Kings 18, he says this, How long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Stop wavering between two opinions. Does that sound familiar? Double-mindedness, you see, was the very disease of Israel back there and then in Elijah's day. The very same disease that James was attacking in the Christians he was writing to. You cannot be loyal to Baal and to the Lord. You cannot be loyal to the world and to the Lord. Double-mindedness in Elijah's day, double-mindedness in James's day. And back on Mount Carmel, there followed a contest. Okay, this is the famous bit. You should read it later, 1 Kings 18. It's a terrific read. You've got Elijah in one corner, okay, and you've got the 450 prophets of Baal in the other. Two bulls, um, the, the prophets of Baal cut up their bull, they put the wood for the fire, they put the meat on the wood, but they didn't light it, okay, that was the challenge. And Elijah's challenge was, look, the God who answers by fire, he is the true God. And so, you know, the prophets of Baal, they get their bull, the wood, and all that sort of stuff, they put it, and they call on Baal from morning till evening, and you've got Elijah in his corner taunting them. You know, call louder, maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's in the toilet. Call louder. And so they dance and they slash each other and they shout and nothing happens. 
and then the spotlight goes to Elijah and he gets the bull and the wood and uh, <clears throat> then he says to the people, put some water on it. So they drench it with water and they, there's a trench around it, it gets filled with water, they drench it three times. It's totally soaked. And then Elijah simply prays to the Lord and fire from the Lord fell and everything burnt up. And when the smoke had cleared, all that was left was a, a black hole in the ground. And at the end, the narrator of 1 Kings writes this, when all the people saw that, they fell prostrate, flat on the ground, and they cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Repentance. Drawing near to God in humility. Single-mindedness. The Lord is God. Not Baal, the Lord is God. He alone is God. Mourning and wailing, you see. And they were asking that the Lord might graciously lift them up. And in 1 Kings 18, what followed was restoration. Elijah prayed. And after three and a half years, you see, the sky suddenly grew black with clouds. The wind rose and a heavy rain fell. Repentance and restoration. Back to James chapter 5. And can you see now that this middle bit, this Elijah bit, actually confirms that what this passage is all about is repentance and restoration. People returning to the Lord in humility and being brought near to him, forgiven. That's what the passage is about, repentance and restoration. So question two, what does the passage teach about what it's about? We going okay? (coughs) Thank you for answering, that's good. Well, what does it teach about what it's about? Well, the answer to that question really lies in sections 1 and 3, the verses either side of the Elijah bit, okay? So we're going to look at them more closely. (coughs) Verse 13, chapter 5. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Those verses, you see, they're continuing James's call for the people to seek the Lord. The word trouble there in verse 13 is the same word translated suffering back in verse 10. In times of suffering... In times of persecution, the right response is to seek the Lord, is to pray. But not just in times of trouble, okay, in times of joy as well. We are to sing songs of praise. We are to acknowledge the Lord's hand. We are to seek him. And, of course, it's true, isn't it? It's often in times of plenty. It's often in times when life is going well that we are most in danger of forgetting the Lord. That's the sort of... uh, it's, it's stupid, but that's how it works. When, when life is most going well, we are most in danger of forgetting the Lord. But the right response, the mature response, is to praise the Lord, the Father of lights from whom all good things come. And so those two calls from James leads on to his main focus. How do we respond to sickness? Verse 14, is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. James devotes much more time to this third situation, sickness, which indicates it's his main focus. And the person he has in mind is very sick. So sick that he can't go to the elders. The elders need to come to him or her. Very sick. And the elders are to pray over the sick person and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. A couple of things to think about from verse 14. Firstly, what does James mean by sick? Because the word James uses is a little bit ambiguous, not in English, but in Greek, how he first wrote it. Because the word that James uses can refer to weakness, even spiritual weakness. But it can also mean physical weakness, like sickness. 
There's a bit of ambiguity. Given what we've seen about the passage being about repentance and restoration, the spiritually weak option is pretty attractive. However, in the Gospels, the word that James uses always means physical sickness. And you might have noticed through James's letter, he's very dependent on the Gospels. He often alludes to it and quotes them. Um, and, and anointing and healing in the Gospels always go together with physical sickness. So James is talking about the physically sick person. But the fact that he chooses an ambiguous word is still significant, I reckon. Also, the anointing is interesting. Anointing with oil is pouring oil over someone. And if you've got your memory cap on, you'll think, oh, we, we thought about that, not, that not, not, not long ago, didn't we, in 1 Samuel, when the prophet Samuel anointed Saul and then David as kings of Israel. It was all a bit messy, lots of olive oil and stuff, but it actually symbolised a person being separated for God's purposes. Now, here in James, there are lots and lots and lots and lots of different suggestions, okay, about what the anointing was for. Some say it was like a medicine. Some say it's like a sacrament. In fact, this is the verse that the Catholic Church rely on for their sacrament of extreme unction or last rites, which is administered by a priest to a dying person to prepare them for death. But it seems to me the best, uh, it's, the best way to read anointing here is to, that it retains its Old Testament use, that it's, it's symbolism, it's setting someone apart for God. We'll come back to it because in verse 15, James anticipates a pretty remarkable outcome, doesn't he? Verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. So to worry about it, James anticipates physical healing for this sick person. And obviously what James anticipates raises some questions for us. So I want us to do, just when you thought, <clears throat> gee, this is going tough, okay, just a fraction tough, are you with, it? Are you with me? Okay. I'm going to do a slight diversion, okay? We're going to leave James 5 a little bit, and I just want to touch on a, this is a healing diversion, okay? Touch on a couple of things before coming back to this verse. All right, so we're, we're sort of leaving James 5, make the mental adjustment. We're going to do a bit slight diversion into healing. Firstly, let me tell you this. Whenever anyone is sick, it is, of course, sensible and right to ask the Lord in prayer to heal that person. And it's right to ask humbly and confidently. Because we know, don't we, that the Lord God is certainly powerful enough to be able to heal any disease. He is certainly powerful enough to heal any disease and he is certainly gracious enough to do it. He is powerful and he is gracious. That is the clear teaching of scripture. And so we should ask humbly and confidently. In times of sickness, it is very wise to call upon the Lord for healing, believing that he is well able to do so. But it's also the clear testimony of Scripture that the Lord's gracious will for his people is, is for health in the next age more so than in this age. While ever we inhabit these bodies belonging to this broken world and this fallen age, while ever we inhabit these words, these, these, sorry, these bodies, they are caught up in the decay of this world. And so we sag, don't we? And we lag. <laughs> And we get sick and we die. But the Lord, you see, the Lord promises his people 
promises his people saved by Jesus. He promises his people life forever and full in the new age, in the new creation, in new resurrection bodies that will be forever immortal and glorious. That's cool. And the Lord promises that right now, right now, if you belong to Christ, he promises that by the word of Christ and by the spirit of Christ, he is preparing you for that forever future. The Bible word for it is sanctification, growing in holiness. That is what counts more than anything else. And you know what? The Lord's sanctifying work in the life of a believer may well include physical healing, but it may not. And in fact, you know, through the trials of suffering, such as ill health, our faith is actually strengthened and refined. We've read about that in James. And that's why, you see, we can rejoice even in sickness. Because we know that in both good and bad, in fact, in all things, God promises to work for the good of those who love him. It's in Romans chapter 8. And what is the good that he works? He tells us. He is conforming us to the likeness of Jesus. Can you believe that? If you belong to Jesus tonight by his word and his spirit, God's promise to you tonight is that he is conforming you to the likeness of Jesus. He is making you ready for a forever future in his very presence. That is God's promise to all of his children. It's an astonishing promise. Even so, in times of sickness, it's wise to call upon the Lord for healing, believing that that he is well able to do so because he is. Of course he is. Now, sometimes people teach that Jesus secured physical healing for his people in his death and resurrection. That's both true and false. He certainly secured physical healing in the age to come. No one can enter eternal life without being saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus. But he did not win physical health for his people in his death on the cross that is, to, that is to misread the famous words of Isaiah 53 that say, by his wounds we are healed. By his wounds we are healed. In context, read Isaiah 53. In context, the healing refers to being, being healed of the disease of sin. Because when you think about it, if Jesus truly secured the physical healing of all of his people in this age, none of his people would die. We all die of something. None of his people would die if that teaching was true. Let me be clear, okay? Does Jesus continue to heal people in this age? You bet. Does Jesus promise to heal all his people completely in this age? No. Is it right to pray for healing in this age? Yes. We clear? When we are sick, it is right to pray to the Lord for healing. But if I can put it this way, it's terrible English, but it's great theology. It is more right to ask the Lord to strengthen your faith in him through the illness so that he might finish his gracious work of preparing you for the life to come. Yes, it's right to pray for healing in this age, but it is more right to ask the Lord that in the midst of this hardship and even this sickness that he would be making me ready for the life to come. Because that's the life that Jesus has won for his people, a life forever and full 
Through his wounds, you see, you have been healed. End of diversion. Back to James 5. Want to take a moment? I, I do. The question is then, how does all that, that diversion, how does it all fit in James 5? Because well, James seems to promise healing, physical healing in this age. What's that all about? Well, here we go. The key to understanding what James is teaching is to remember what the passage is about. Remember I said the, the questions need to keep them in order. It's about, remember, repentance and restoration. And like we noticed earlier, as you read through verses 14, 15 and 16, do it again now as I'm talking if you like, as you read through verses 14, 15 and 16, it actually gets a bit confusing because there's times, that, is James talking about sickness or sin? Is James talking about healing or forgiveness? Because the words seem almost interchanged. In verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the sick person. The Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Sickness or sin? Healed or forgiven? The answer lies, next step, the answer lies in recognising that sometimes the Lord disciplines his children through sickness. Sometimes. Hear that word? Sometimes. Sometimes the Lord disciplines his children through sickness. An example of this from the Bible can be found in the first century church of Corinth. The church in Corinth bore more than a lot of resemblance to the Christians that James was writing to. According to the Apostle Paul, they failed to recognise the importance of them being the body of the Lord. They were characterised by division and infighting and boasting and lovelessness. And you know what? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle gave them this assessment. Check this out. Verse 11, verse 30, he says this. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Christians in the Corinthian church were weak and sick and dead because of their disobedience. The Lord was judging their disobedience. The Lord was exercising his fatherly discipline among them. And their sickness and their weakness and their dying should have been a wake-up call from God that they needed to come back to him in repentance. All was not well. Now, did I just say, did, I just, did, he, did Paul really just say that whenever a Christian gets sick, God is disciplining them because of their persistent sin? Did Paul really say that? No, he didn't. Paul didn't just say that. Paul said, sometimes he does. I'm saying that that is a possibility that the wise, mature Christian should consider. And as soon as I say that, that's, that's, a, that's a rude wake-up call for us, isn't it? We are so tolerant of sin in our life, we, can't, we can hardly imagine that God would do that. We can hardly imagine it. He wouldn't do that. That's not like God, is it? <laughs> you know what? God hates sin. God knows how destructive sin is in the life of his children. He loves his children too much to let it just go on, undealt with. And we are so tolerant so often of sin in our own life, so, so tolerant of sin so often in the life of our church family, we so easily make excuses for it. We treat it as if it's no big deal. But it is a big deal, you see. It's such a big deal. that There were people within the church of Corinth who were dead because of their sin. 
And there were people who were weak and sick in Corinth because of their sin. And that seems to me to be precisely the situation in James chapter 5. Adulterous Christians, double-minded Christians, disobedient Christians, and some were sick. Some were very sick. And James calls on them, listen to the wake-up call from God. Repent so that you might be restored. Repent so that you might even be healed of your sickness, forgiven of your sin, but you need to humble yourself. See, in calling the elders, there is an act of repentance. The sick person is humbling themselves before the Lord that the Lord might lift them up. The anointing with oil, remember, was was a symbol of the sick person's determination to single-mindedly serve the Lord. It was a symbol of saying, I am done with the world. I want to belong to Jesus wholeheartedly, single-mindedly. I want to be set apart from the world so that I might serve the Lord. What James is commanding is sick people, sinful people, coming near to God in repentant sorrow, looking to the gracious Lord to lift them up. James 5 verse 16, see the first word, it's a big one. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. How powerful, James? How effective? Remember Elijah? Just like repentance led to restoration in Elijah's day, James is saying to the Christians that he's writing to, that could be you too, you know. That was James' hope for the Christians he was writing to. Repentance and restoration, forgiveness and healing. In fact, he hoped that the faithful Christians would do so well in seeking out wandering, faithless Christians within their church family. That's what he goes on to call for, isn't it? Verse 19, My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Brothers and sisters, could there be a more important thing that a Christian could ever do than bring back a wandering sinner, turn a sinner from the error of his ways, Save them from death. Could there be a more important thing that anyone could ever do? No. And that leads to our final question, doesn't it? How are we to be doers of this word from God? And I think I've got three little sub-points. First one is sin matters to God and we need to recognise that. Sin's serious. We've got to stop kidding ourselves that it's not. Especially sin that corrupts and disrupts the body of Christ, a church family. It matters to God. It matters to him so much that for our good, he will discipline us. He even judges sin within us and among us because he is determined, you see, he is promised, he is determined to make us ready for that forever life that he has secured for his children. He is determined, he's made his promise. He's not going to let sin stand He's made a promise. It matters to him. He hates it. He hates what it does. He hates its consequences. He hates the dishonour that it brings to his holy name. He hates it. And so therefore sin should matter to us, shouldn't it? If there is persistent sin in your life, even tonight, if there is a sin that has been in your life for a long time and you've failed to deal with it, if there is a persistent sin... The time to act, brother or sister, is right now. We mustn't laugh it off. We mustn't excuse it. 
We mustn't explain it away. We mustn't look for someone worse than us. Chapter 4, verses 7, 8, 9 and 10. That's our model. Submit to God. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change our laughter to mourning, our joy to gloom. As sinners, we need to wash our hands. As as double-minded people, we need to purify our hearts. The time to act is now. And it's also right, you know, through sickness, through times of sickness, it's right, it's wise, it's mature to humble yourself before the Lord and to consider prayerfully the possibility, the possibility that it may be his fatherly discipline of persistent sin and that repentance may be required. And can I say, surely that is a question we should always be asking anyway. Prayerfully. Father, is there persistence in my life that I'm somehow blind to? Please show it to me. I want to be done with it. Do whatever you like, Father. Cut it out. Because I want to spend the rest of my life with Jesus. That's a wise prayer. That's a humble prayer. Let me say it again. Sickness is not automatically and always connected to particular sin. But it may be. And that's the possibility that this passage raises and warns us of. And the third thing about being doers of this word, sin should matter to us in the lives of our brothers and sisters. See, we cannot, we must not have a hands-off approach to sin in each other's lives. It's not loving to say nothing. We convince ourselves it is. That's just fear. That's gutlessness. It's not loving to say nothing. It's not loving to let someone, um, you know, have to say. It's not loving to wash our hands of other people and just let them walk away. And I'm guilty of that. And I suspect you are too. Gee, they've had their chance. Three phone calls. I think I've done enough. (laughs) Really? I'm talking to myself. Friends, we need to be a church family who is devoted to one another. That's the word, devoted to one another committed to bringing back any one of us who might wander from the truth because this stuff matters more than we know james says brothers and sisters remember this whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save that person from death and cover over a multitude of sins is that not the church we want to be a church that evening church boy they are devoted to each other A church family that takes sin as seriously as God takes it. A church family committed to repentance and restoration. A church family committed to praying for each other and with each other. A church family committed to saving each other from death. That's a church family I want to belong to. That's a church family I would like to be a faithful pastor of. We need God's help. I need God's help. How great that he's gracious. And that if we humble ourselves before the Lord, he'll lift us up. My brothers and my sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his or her way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. How about we pray? Take a moment to pray, why don't you?
Heavenly Father, we thank you, praise you for your grace, for treating us more richly than we deserve. For we deserve nothing good. We thank you for saving us through Jesus. We thank you for making it possible for our sins to be washed clean. We thank you, Father, just for your fatherly care of us. We thank you for your promise to deliver us into a life forever and full. Father, we want to be people who take sin in our life as seriously as you take it. How pathetic, Father, that sometimes we think of you as a killjoy when you are the exact opposite. Thank you that Jesus promises life to the full. Father, help us to believe him and not fall for the lies of the tempter and his empty promises and his futile path. Father, help us to understand just the power of the life that Christ has won for us. Help us to desire that life more than any other. And Father, as a church family, change us, please. Do whatever you need to do. Pray that with a little trepidation, but we trust you. Do whatever you need to do, Father. Make us your people devoted, single-minded. Make us ready to live forever with Jesus because that's what we want more than anything else. And we want to bring you honour. We don't want to bring you dishonour in the way that we live our life, half-heartedly, double-mindedly. We submit ourselves to you, Father. We come near to you. We ask that you might wash us, purify us, We humble ourselves before you, Lord, and we ask that you might lift us up. We ask that you might revive us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.